You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. It is really, really good to be here and to worship our Lord and Savior with each and every one of you. Uh, I'm really grateful for that this church is here and that the witness of the gospel is found on this corner of the square here in Mount Air uh, as a part of Ringgold County in the great state of Iowa. Um, And I pray for this church often. My family and I pray for this church often. So thankful for the friendship we have with Darren and Darla and their kids and the work that is going on here. And the more people that I meet uh, that are a part of this body and a part of this city, I'm just, city, I'm used to Buffalo, this town, um, uh, I'm just really excited for what God's going to do in and through his people. And it is truly an honor to uh, worship and to teach God's word. And I do not come as an expert. I do not come as someone who thinks that I have this all figured out. But what I, what I am is I'm, I'm teaching to myself first. And I know that this is a, a played out illustration, but I'm a, I'm a beggar among beggars who found food. And so let's look into that food, which is the word of God today. But before we do, it's important that you know something about me. See, I'm a huge Chicago Cubs fan. Uh, I love the Cubs, and I started watching the Cubs on WGN television in the mid-1980s as a kid. I loved listening to Harry Carey and Steve Stone on hot summer days, and I remember my first time seeing a game at Wrigley Field. Has anybody been to Wrigley Field before? It's magical, right? Oh, it's so awesome. And uh, I've, I've also have a lot of painful memories of heartbreak, bad breaks, 100-game losing seasons. But then we finally reached the big dance. We came to the World Series, and even then, we had to endure seven games We had to endure an eighth-inning Rajay Davis game-tying home run from Cleveland. Still getting over this. We even had an extra-inning rain delay. It's like, could this prolong any further? But in the end, Cubs win. Cubs win. Cubs win. I may or may not have shed tears. I will neither confirm nor deny if I wept like a little child watching them gather at the pitcher's mound. But some things are definitely worth the wait, aren't they? I mean, some things are even worth the suffering. And oh, if there's one thing that Cubs fans know about, it's suffering. And I'm fearful we're entering into another season of suffering, but we'll see. But let me tell you something. When that finish line is crossed, when the hope becomes reality, when the victory is won, It is so sweet. And in a much more profound way, the book of Revelation, where we're going to be this morning, has been graciously given to us through John the Apostle to remind us that hoping in Christ and remaining faithful to him through all the trials and hardship of life is worth it. It tells of victory for his faithful people, it tells of victory over Satan and over and evil and, 
their final destruction. And, in, and it tells of the victory of grace over judgment for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at eight verses in Revelation chapter 21. This is a beautiful culmination of not only the book, but of all history where all things are made new by the powerful work of God. God renewing all things is not meant to be a pipe dream. It is not meant to be a baseless spiritual claim meant to give some false sense of security. It is not meant to be an opiate for the masses so that society is controlled by those who sit in positions of power. And it is certainly not meant to be taken as a mere allegory or to give some neat little life lesson to just keep on trucking. But what is taught in chapter 21 as well as the entire book of Revelation, all of Scripture, actually, is meant to define for us reality and truth. And this chapter shows what our future reality is and what is described is absolutely true because what we will see is the one who gives these promises is himself true. And I pray as we turn our attention here, the reality of what awaits those who belong to Christ, I pray it sinks deeply into our hearts so that every day, so that our everyday life is shaped by this blessed hope, this eternal weight of glory, as the Apostle Paul calls it. I pray that what we learn here governs how we face today and face every single day that we wake up. That it changes the way we approach our marriages, our parenting, our commitment to the body of Christ, our relationships, shapes how we walk through despair and suffering. And yes, even shapes death. And that even death is governed by what we see in these next few verses. But I pray more than anything, we find our treasure here so that our hearts will follow. So if you have your copy of God's word, I think it will also be on the screen. Let us read now Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. This is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, 
the faithless, the detestable. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of God. As our text opens, John sees a new heaven and a new earth, followed by this holy city, what is called the New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God. And what is being described here is that the entire created order is going to be made new. See, when we see heaven and earth put together, like in verse 1, it is not meant to be only limited to these two entities. Rather, it is representative of everything. So when it says the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth, it means everything. Scripture teaches that sin has not only affected mankind, but this disease has spilled into all creation. And because of man's sins, all things are broken. All things have been corrupted, and all things are in need of restoration. For example, listen to what uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23 tell us. Paul writes this, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's us. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here we see that mankind and creation are linked together. When man rebelled against God, creation was affected and has been longing, in fact groaning, to be set free. Even more than that, creation is eagerly waiting for the church, all of God's people, to be completely restored. Think about this. Every time we see a violent tornado, a devastating earthquake, we're going through a pandemic right now that is sweeping across the globe. We, we fight droughts, all of these various things. These are all reminders that the creation order is groaning. Not only for its restoration, but for the salvation of God to be complete in his people. One cannot and will not be restored without the other. And the new heavens and the earth will be patterned after the first one, don't miss this point. Heaven will not be lived on some ethereal spiritual cloud where we all get three string golden harps and we can't really touch anything. That sounds really boring. I don't want to go there. God has something so much greater in store for us. Instead, we will be in a newly created earth with a newly created heaven and everything will be made new and everything will be set free from corruption. The new creation will exist as God originally intended it to be. 
Newness in our passage does not mean newness in, 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 in quality. Or I mean, I'm sorry, it means newness in quality, not newness in kind. Does that make sense? The quality of everything will be perfect. We get a hint about what this will be like in our text in Revelation. And it's interesting. We get this hint not primarily in positive terms. In other words, saying what will be there, although we do get one really good hint of what will be there, or a picture of what will be there. But ultimately, we, we get this hint of what heaven will be like, but by what will not be there. Boy, this is an interesting thing when you compare this to other world religions. Because other world religions kind of make heaven like all the good things of this. Like, like it kind of, you know, if you do these things, you'll get these virgins. If you do these things, you'll get all, you, you know, all these earthly things that make you comfortable here will ultimately be what you get up there. That's not really what we see in the text. We see something much richer. See, verse 1 tells us that there'll be no more sea. What does this mean? There'll be no more sea. Does this mean that there'll be no oceanfront property in heaven? Does that mean you fishermen won't be able to fish in heaven next to beautiful streams and brooks and oceans? It's okay. No, you can all rest. Take a deep breath, you water lovers. The sea in the scriptures most often symbolizes evil, chaos, and the barrier that separates God from his people. Saying the sea will be no more is a short way of saying that there'll be no more evil. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more corruption. There'll be no more brokenness. Satan will be gone. No more barriers in front of God's people. It will be a world of truth, of beauty, and of goodness without hindrance. And verses 4 and 5 continue this description by saying there'll be no more tears. No more death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. I get older in my life. I'm 43 now. My body hurts more than it used to. Tell me this goes away. I'm not getting hope from you. (laughs) I'm ready for that day. We read that former things will have passed away and that God will have made all things new. See, the effects of God's final redemption will be as pervasive as sin's total corruption. Just as there is not one part of our current created order that is not broken, marred, dirtied, and untouched by sin, there will be no part of the new creation that is therefore not entirely whole and perfect, functioning as it should be, never again to be corrupted. This is so difficult for us to comprehend because in this life, you and I, we have never had an experience or an emotion. We have never even heard a song or beheld beauty or even loved someone that is not tainted by sin. Even the purity of a of a father and mother loving their child. As pure as that is, it is tainted by sin and corruption and brokenness. But can you imagine what it will be like to live in a world entirely swept clean of all of that? Can you think of a time where you have transcended a moment? Maybe it was the birth of of one of your children. Maybe it was hearing a song that stopped you in your tracks because of its beauty. 
Have you ever had an experience in nature in a way that was so beautiful, you're, you, 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 you almost didn't know how to respond to it? That For me, that was sitting in Montana and seeing unobstructed heavenly views without man-made light, and it stopped me in my tracks. It was my wife walking down the aisle to me. It was holding each one of my children and going, oh. See, the reason why these are so wonderful is I would submit these are glimpses, hints, shadows of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. The reason it will be so wonderful is because of the one characteristic we are told will be in heaven. God himself. He is what makes heaven, heaven. Dwelling with God is ultimately what every human heart is longing for. He is truth. He is beauty. He is goodness. And heaven will be great because God is great. And our ultimate desire should be fixed on being with him over and against any secondary blessing of the new heavens and the new earth. And God will dwell with his people. John continues his vision using this apocalyptic language, calling the newly created order, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which will come down from God prepared as a bride. And what John is doing here, this is really rich. I, I hope we can all track on this together. What John is doing here is he's building on the Old Testament prophet Isaiah who wrote to God's people who were in exile. They were, they were taken from the land they were meant to dwell in, living in exile. They were suffering in that exile with the hope of a better future, of being God's people, dwelling in God's place, under God's loving rule and care. And so God inspired Isaiah to write a message meant to give hope and encouragement to the nation of Israel. And Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 65 how they could look forward to a day when they would no longer suffer as slaves in a foreign land, that they could look forward to a time when God would bring them into intimate fellowship with himself in his city, in a world perfectly ruled by him, free from all sin and wickedness. And what John writes here, what he writes about here is the fulfillment of what God wrote through Isaiah. And it's only able to be fulfilled because of Jesus Christ, who is both the fulfiller and the fulfillment of all Scripture. Because in him, sin and evil were finally defeated. We can't do that. See, Jesus came and did what the first man, Adam, couldn't do. He did what the nation of Israel couldn't do. He did what you and I cannot do. Fulfilled God's law perfectly. Live a perfect life, sinless in thought, mind, intentions, deed, everything. Then he sacrificed his life to fulfill God's judgment and wrath for sin on behalf of his people. He who knew no sin became sin for his people so that his people would be called the righteousness of God. Afterward, he resurrected from the grave 
delivering the final blow to sin, Satan, evil, and sin. And his redemptive work was sealed by his ascension into heaven. And then the Father and the Son sends the Spirit of God into the world to dwell in his people and to convict the world of their need of a Savior, of the blessed hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And this is the work that allows the Isaiah prophecy to be fulfilled. Therefore, here's, here's, don't, don't, please don't miss this. Don't miss this not only for you, but think about the people that dwell here in Mount Air and in Ringgold County. Only those, only those, only those who have placed their faith in Christ are able to share in these promises. Because only through Christ is sin overcome. Believers in Christ are not only receive forgiveness, but they also have Christ's goodness and innocence applied to them. These people are called his people, are called his church, are called his bride. At the end of all days, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, many theologians think that is apocalyptic language of the church being presented to God. Like a bride walking the aisle to her husband. Bought by his work. Beautiful because he's made them beautiful. Lavished his love, mercy, and grace. And he, the bridegroom, stands with joy as his bride comes to him to dwell in his eternal perfect kingdom. The church is dear to him because they were purchased at such a high price in the death of our Lord. He deeply loves and is jealous for them as a devoted husband is for his wife. But this is also why we must heed the warning of verse 8. Only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Remember, there will be no evil, there will be no unbelief, there will be no uh, godlessness, there will be no unrighteousness in the new heavens and the new earth. And so verse 8 tells us something else that won't be with God. Those who have not placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation. Why? Because their sin remains. And God will not allow sin in his presence. They have not had the gift of Christ's goodness and innocence applied to them. Therefore, just as God's people will spend eternity with God, those who reject Christ will spend eternity apart from him in everlasting torment. The holy city being referred to as a bride being adorned for her husband richly displays the passion, the love, the commitment, and the faithfulness that God has for his people and it's best seen in the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a profound mystery because it represents Christ and his church. This is why the church is, is so passionate about clinging to a biblical definition of marriage. Because it does not belong to us. It is God's institution that tells a bigger story than just two people liking each other. What John says 
is say, uh, what John is saying is the new creation will be free from all evil and its effects. It will be a place where God himself dwells with his people intimately. Everything the human soul longs for, everything creation groans for, will finally be satisfied in God's place under God's perfect and loving rule. God dwelling with man as one. Being our God and we being his people has already been established for those who trust in and follow Jesus. But what is being emphasized here is that what is lived by faith now will one day be sight. Oh, think about that for a minute. You will see God's face. How can we possibly measure the weight of that? It is the great hope of our entire faith. Christian, be filled with hope. Be filled with joy. Be filled with anticipation. Be faithful to your Lord. Verse 7 says that if you conquer in this life, you will have this heritage. God will be your God. You will be his son, and you want to be his son. So what does it mean to overcome? It means to remain faithful to Christ throughout all of life in all of its circumstances. Let the weighty promise compel you to hold on to the God who ultimately holds you. The true saints of God will persevere to the end, and in the end will have such a rich heritage, you will be treated as a son. This means that you will be treated by God the Father just as he treats God the Son. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God that such a promise would be extended to us. What hope. What a glorious future that awaits. No wonder Paul can write that the suffering we endure now does not compare to the glorious joys that await us. See, chapter 21 is meant to bring profound motivation to remain faithful to Christ, to remain faithful to his people, and hope to persevere through our exile journey through this broken world. Our faith is not misplaced. It is not meant to be a crutch because we're too weak to get through life. The reality is we're all too weak to get through life. God will complete the work he began in us and in the world for his glory and our good. But why? Why can we have such certainty in these things? Why can I stand here and boldly encourage you to build every aspect of your life on these promises, whatever the cost, and through whatever trials may come? Is it insensitive of me to not take into account your grief in life, or mine? Is it foolish of me to take this position that this passage is absolute truth in a world that rejects absolute truth absolutely? I mean, isn't there maturity in doubt, as some in our culture would say? What gives us the right to be so bold? 
Because he who promises such things is faithful and true. Verses 5 and 6 tells us. And Jesus reiterates that he is faithful and true in chapter 22. It is critically important to consider the character and authority of the one who is making these promises. This is the Lord. This isn't me. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, it is not some faux God or mere man. It's not a fortune cookie made in New Jersey. We do not read this in some greeting card. This is God himself speaking. And if history tells us anything, he is faithful and powerful to do everything he said he would do. We can take his promises to the bank. If you doubt these words, you are doubting God himself. You are impugning his very nature and his very character. Look at how God speaks in verses 5 and 6. He speaks of all of this in the past tense. It is done. This is a definitive statement, which means nothing can stop God establishing his kingdom and bringing his people into it. Not an election, not a pandemic, not, not, nas- not nations clashing against nations, not, not, not an academic system that seeks to teach everything but the scripture. None of that will stop. The advancement of God's kingdom. He is in control of history. He is in control of these events. He is in control of bringing his people to their true home where they will no longer be sojourners and exiles. He has established the beginning of all things and he will be the finisher of all things. One day our relationship with God won't require faith anymore. We will see God face to face. In him all the deepest longings of our soul are satisfied. There will be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more war, racism, or poverty. There will be no more depression, no more brokenness, no more pain, no more want. There'll be no more insecurity, no more mental illness, no cancer, heart attacks, and addiction. There'll be no more haves and have-nots, no more broken families, no more orphans, no more child abuse, no more widows. No more longing for something better, no more, no more goodbyes. And this will all be possible because God will be there and he will make all things new. And whether we know it or not, he is what the human heart longs for. Whatever you struggle with is satisfied in him. So what are we to do with this? What are we to take away from this? I'm not going to give you three alliterated, clever, catchy, crucial points to help you have a better eternity. But I want to ask you two questions to ponder that I think should influence how we approach the whole of our lives. And I sincerely hope we all deeply think about them. First, do you believe this? And I don't mean belief meaning a mental assent, but the biblical idea of belief, it's this Greek word pistis or pistuo. Imagine a drowning person's 
clinging to life in the ocean and someone gives them a, 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 a life vest. How that person clings to that life vest. That's a, a picture of biblical belief. Do you believe in the one who has spoken these words? And if so, does it influence the way you walk through all of life? Do you walk through life as one who has a great hope waiting for them? See, God is not holding a carrot over your head that you'll never reach, but he's showing you the finish line that he will give you the strength to cross. Second, how often do you think about eternity? Sincerely, how often do you think about it, talk about it? Root daily life in it, because this life is preparation for eternity. If you're an athlete, you prepare and you live for the game that's coming. You, you prepare for the game coming in the future. We know that the game is coming. We know, you know, if we're, if we're going on vacation, we, we, we work every day. And like, hey, vacation's coming. <laughs> Affects how we work, how we see things. In the same way, how often do we allow that to happen when it comes to eternity? And when you do think about it, what is your ultimate hope and joy in? Is it in the secondary blessings of heaven or is it seeing God's face and dwelling in his perfect presence? The great American theologian, and I'm going to close with this, said this, Jonathan Edwards, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life? Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper and true happiness? That's a great question, isn't it? Why would we set our hearts on anything else? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, and we are so thankful that you are trustworthy and true. We are so thankful that you are such in command and in control of history that you can speak in the past tense regarding the fulfillment of all your promises. Father, help us all here to deeply believe in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith to deeply believe in every one of your promises and help us live every moment of this life to raise our children, to engage those around us that don't know you and in our commitment to one another in the body of Christ be lived with the expectation of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.